Morning, church. Uh, the last couple of months, we celebrated a couple of, of our kids' birthdays. And one of the things that I've noticed about them, which uh, is kind of funny and sort of annoying, is um, that they, when, they, when the birthday's coming up, they have lots of anticipation, expectation about what's going to happen. And maybe they have certain things that they really are hoping to get. And invariably, what happens is either they sort of feel a little bit let down, um, maybe, or after the day is gone, like uh, my one son, the youngest son, it's his chance, this is one day a year to get treated like a king and so everybody knows that everything has to happen this day so so funny the second day right after his birthday his older brother one of them I won't mention his name was making a puzzle with him finished the puzzle picked it up and he dropped it on his head and he's like I don't have to be nice to you anymore it's not your birthday uh, so there's a bit of revolt but you know there's the letdown for him going oh my one day of uh, fame is, is over uh, or they they get something that they really want and you get it for them and they love it and then in a little while like you see it like left in the corner of the house or it's broken and they're not interested anymore in whatever they had uh, have been so excited about has sort of faded. Now you'd think as adults this would sort of change as we get older, but it really doesn't, right? Um, I think that's uh, not just uh, that there are things in our lives that we're really excited about that are shiny for a period of time and then a little while later we're sort of bored of, but I was thinking it kind of describes to a great extent many of, much of the way we approach marriage, singleness, and sex. There are many of us maybe who are married that had hoped and we had thought and expected it would be a certain way. And then over time, you know, we even have a phrase for it. We say, oh, the honeymoon period is over. <laughs> it's a little less shiny. Uh, and maybe the person is a little less uh, appealing than they were. or They're doing things that we didn't know they would do. And now that's making us a little bit upset. And we're sort of struggling with that dynamic in marriage. It's like, oh, it's not exactly what I hoped to be. Even if I'd say, yeah, yeah, it's really, I enjoyed it. It's fulfilling, but it's, it's a lot different than what I thought it was going to be. For some people, perhaps uh, a marriage is completely disintegrated. And so we are left in the place going, wow, that did not turn out at all how I had hoped or how I was expecting. There are others of us maybe who are single and who are expecting or, or longing for marriage or some kind of companionship that would come along and it hasn't materialized in the way that we had hoped. Or perhaps dating relationships have been more of a disappointment than an encouragement. And so we're left sort of struggling with this aspect of like going, how come things haven't turned out the way I'd hoped they would be? And the premise that I set before you at the very beginning of this whole series as we look at what, what, what it means to be married, well, how do we deal with life as a single person? How do we, both of us, married or single, deal with the area of our sexuality? Is that God's intention for our lives, though we are relentlessly pursuing happiness, he is pursuing holiness in our lives. And not that that sounds like kind of boring and spiritual. It's just that God wants to bring us happiness, but he does it in a very different way than we would. And that in fact, he uses every stage of our life, no matter what stage we are in today, whether we are married today or we're single today, whether we're really happy with our stage of life or whether we're frustrated, whether we feel that all of the desires we had are slowly getting met or that none of them are materializing. That God is using every aspect of this part of our lives to actually make us holy, which means to make us more like Jesus, which ultimately is to give us the joy and fulfillment that we long for in life. And the premise of the whole series is that God's way in our lives, if we would embrace it, and for those of us who call ourselves Christians, who are followers, we, that's, that is what we have said. Yes, we will embrace your way of living, that as we bring his ways and his design for our relationship, for our sexuality into, his, into our lives, that we will actually experience fulfillment and a life of no regrets. And I said to you, no regrets isn't just sort of a naive sort of hope for those of us that are the early stages of this, but that even if we would say we've moved through life and there are regrets that we're dealing with in the area of our relationships, that one of the most miraculous things that God does is as we embrace his way and say, okay, today I'm going to head in a new direction. Today I'm going to hear your voice. Today, even if in the past I have not listened, I will listen today. In the past, even if I've been disinterested or frustrated or unbelieving, hopeless, today I will begin to trust you. And that as we do that, God, by his power, actually reaches back into our past and is able to heal the things that we cannot change. And in the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about what it, how we understand God's ways for us as married people. This morning, we're going to talk about what it means as a single person to receive God's ways. But I'd encourage you, uh, no matter what life stage you're in, uh, to Listen, because I believe what God has to say to single people is the same profound truths that can transform those of us that are about to get married or those of us who are married. 
Now, if I think about those the conversations that I've had with people who are single, you know, starting to maybe starting out and thinking they're going to date or and dating or potentially going to get married, or those maybe who have decided, no, that's not for me. I'm really not going to, uh, to get married in life. Or maybe you were single again. You've been married. That marriage has dissolved. And so now you're in a place you're single again. There are particular challenges in this stage of life. And some of the conversations I've had with people, I say, you know, Vijay, as a single person, you sometimes get treated like your life is not complete. That somehow you're less of a person because you're not with someone else. And often when people meet you, that's the, that's the conversation when I want to find out about you. Sometimes it's our own family that makes us feel like that. Like well-intentioned, loving parents or siblings or grandparents who make hurtful comments about, well, what's the matter? How come this? Or how come that didn't work out? Or why don't you? And so there's this feeling, well, what's wrong with, can't you just accept me the way I am? And yet there's a particular challenge where some people say, well, actually, I do feel incomplete. I, 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 I long for that companionship. I want to find that intimacy. And so I'm left in this thing of sometimes feeling like people treat me like I'm not a complete person. Sometimes I don't feel like one. For those of us that are single again, sometimes you feel like that, that label sort of just sits out over your head. It's sort of something that's a title that now you're meant to carry and that somehow you're going to have to work it into the conversation soon just to let people know, oh, I used to be married. And so there can be a stigma with that that we feel the burden of or the weight of. Single people say to me, you know, Vijay, it feels like most everybody's married. And so nobody really understands what it's like to be in this stage of life. Or they forget, or maybe they were single for a couple of years, you know, when they were in their late teens or early 20s, but that doesn't really count. And so they don't know actually what it feels like to be in this stage of life. And so people say insensitive things. Some who are growing older and single thinking, well, realistically, what's going to happen? Maybe you're caring for parents or caring for aging siblings. And you think, well, who's going to care for me when I age? And that's a concern as well. As we reflect on these things in our lives as single people and understand, well, how are we meant to actually receive God's plan and God's design for our life in this stage, in these particular complexities? And there are far more than what I've mentioned. And unfortunately, the church, um, you know, Paige Brown, who's uh, the chaplain at Vanderbilt University, I don't know if she still is now, but she wrote an article when she was there in 1998 about being single, and she was sort of saying, you know, the church has really pathetic ways of responding to people who are single within the church. First of all, she said the church has sort of over-romanticized or even bought into the idea that the culture has holding up marriage as somehow the most godly state of being. And that if you're not there, that someone can say to you, well, um, you know, God must be trying to teach you something. Uh, before he brings you your marriage partner, as if all of us who got married were, had learned everything and now we were ready and mature for marriage. Or maybe, um, maybe you don't love God enough now and he's waiting for you to love him first before you love another person. Sounds really spiritual as well, as if that were true about all the people who got married and as if that were even realistic to somehow attain in our lives. And so even the church in these matters has sort of failed and, and the world, I guess, the culture that we live in has a different solution. It, it used to be in, in earlier times that that was the case, that, that you were only legitimate if you were a married person. But the way our culture has dealt with this now is the whole idea of being single and sexy. That somehow it's cool and it's okay to be in a single stage of life because really two values that uh, they would put forward towards a single person saying, well, you have the time to work hard, to climb the corporate ladder at day and, and by day and be a great uh, you know, swinger at night. To work hard and date hard. And I was thinking about the, um, the, one of the shows that Jenna and I like to watch is a show about a bunch of lawyers and I was thinking about this going like, all, none of them are married. Some of them are sort of single again, past marriage. And all of them, they hold up this life of these very powerful, hardworking people, men and women, who are able to have all this time to work hard and climb the corporate ladder, and they play hard. They date hard. And they have lots of relationships, and it's quite considered a very legitimate stage of life. Now, for many years, this idea of the, of the single kind of playing guy is sort of an envious thing for, you know, those husbands who are now at home with one wife and looking after kids and changing diapers. Like, ooh, envious about that guy who's got enough time and extra money to spend on nice cars and go out with different girls. But now women have said, hey, we can do that too. And so hot in Cleveland or sex in the city or whatever it is says, hey, this is a legitimate stage in life for women to be single too because it, it was stigmatic before. It was kind of sexist that men could act like that, but women, you have different names for women if they act like that. 
But that's not the case anymore. We say, well, no, these are legitimate ways of life. And so this is the way our world has responded to being single. Yeah, be single. That's okay. There's nothing stigmatic about it. But be sexy too. Play the field. Work hard, play hard. That's how our culture deals with it. Now, I don't even know, we're, we're seeing even some of the effects of this playing out in the way that less and less people actually, that kind of lifestyle is actually working against marriage, that less and less people want to get married. Some of the studies have been done at various universities about the attitudes towards marriage is that women over time through this feel hurt mostly and tend to have expectations that are too high and that men don't feel any impetus to actually get married. And when men are asked, in one particular survey, they were asked, well, you know, do you care about the fact that if you're not pursuing marriage, that there are some women who will get to a certain age where they won't be able to have children? The guys are like, well, that's their problem. It's not ours. And so that has not actually perpetuated healthy, loving, intimate relationships. It's working against what initially people are looking for. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk actually about sex in the context of God's design and how some of the prevailing attitudes of our culture are actually wreaking havoc in our lives. The scriptures actually offer for us a very different perspective on what it means to be a Christian single. And the scriptures perspective are not just for those of us who are Christians who are single, but those of us who are married as well. The culture of the New Testament, we have to understand in one sense, singlehood was not a legitimate stage of life at all. In the ancient world, in the first century, when the scriptures were written, when Jesus came, when the church was formed, it was a culture where family was everything. Family businesses were passed on to the next heir. The children received inheritances, worked in the family business. If your father was a such and such, you were a such and such. And you became that way. And the reason those things were passed on was that was security. There was no RSPs, there was no long-term investments. It was the land, it was the property, it was the business that you had. And you acquired that stability and future security in life by becoming married and families would look for sort of equal or like families to, to get together with. And, and, and from a South Asian, I'm from a South Asian background, Asian culture, some of this idea is still not, not that long ago when my parents got married. And that idea was look for families as sort of equal socioeconomic thing and is this going to be a good marriage for the family? And those families came together. And so there was a there was no way that uh, singleness was considered kind of a legitimate stage in life in the ancient world. Because if you were single, you didn't have anybody to uh, procreate with and have heirs and have a future nest egg. Your financial stability and viability in the long run depended on your ability to get married. And so your parents would help you with and that's how it would work. There was no such thing as single and sexy. If you were single and sexy, you were a prostitute. That was it. You weren't going to be single and kind of playing the field. You had to get married. And into this culture, Jesus comes and begins to teach. And the things that he's saying are starting to make everyone around feel really uncomfortable with the ways that they have always lived in every aspect of life. And so the group of religious leaders who were charged with sort of preserving the culture and the norms come to Jesus and say, hey, we want to talk to you about, so what do you think about marriage because, and, and divorce and some of the things that we have come to sort of say are careful situations. And you understand in the ancient world, men were in control. And so a man could divorce a wife for a number of reasons. One, if she didn't bear him any children because if she didn't give you heirs, well then what was the purpose of being married? Because you weren't going to be able to carry on your family name. And so you were allowed to divorce a woman if she was barren. You were allowed to divorce a woman if you didn't like how she smelled. It seemed that there were so many different ways that a man could get out of the relationship. And so the Pharisees are thinking, Jesus is starting to accept, upset all of these other norms. Let's talk to him about this. And so here's what um, they say. We read a, the beginning of this passage last week, and we're going to read uh, a larger part of it now. Matthew 19, verses 3 to 12. Some Pharisees came to test him. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Because of course in their law, it was. Haven't you read? He appeals to their law. He replied that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. 
Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And this would basically allow him to sort of annul the marriage and he could do that. And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Which was an astounding statement in that culture. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only to those who it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. And others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can't accept this should accept it. So they come to him talking about divorce, talking about how they could continue to sort of hold their power. And Jesus says, well, let's talk about marriage and singleness and divorce. Let's talk about all this together. And one of the things he says right away is marriage is not a place for control and selfishness. Marriage is not this great place of advantageousness for a man, which is why the disciples are like, ooh, maybe it's not the way we thought it was. Maybe, we, maybe it's better not to marry. It was an astounding statement for a first century Jew to make. Jesus was essentially saying to them, because men were in control. Women and children, generally speaking, were treated as property. And even though Jewish law under God was much more progressive than some of the other cultures around it, still men were, had, were in the driver's seat. And Jesus says, listen, you don't get to dismiss a woman for any and every reason. If she doesn't bear you children, you don't get to kick her the cur to the curb and just say, well, we're done here. Even in this statement, Jesus was protecting and upholding the rights of women in a way that was so countercultural. And he says to them, marriage is not this place for selfishness and control, men. And so they say, whoa, maybe it's better not to be married. And then he goes on to say this, and he describes three different types of people who might find themselves single. And he used the word eunuch, and we don't need to go into how that actually happens or what that exactly means, but essentially eunuchs were people who were single in that culture. And he said, listen, some were born that way. Some were made that way by men. In other words, people made them eunuchs and made them slaves. And others have chosen to be that way because of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's he talking about? If I could say this, he's saying, look, there are some people who don't really have a desire to be married. They're just, that, as long as they can remember, that's not something they have ever really pursued and desired. So there are some people who are single and they're happy about it. That's kind of where they want to be in life. Then he said, there are some who are single by men. And I could say this, there are some who are single by circumstance. It's not something you necessarily would choose. You want to be married, or perhaps you've been married and it didn't work out. There were circumstances that have led to you now being single. But it's not something you were born, it's not something you said, no, I was never interested in. You are, but because of circumstances, because even of maybe the actions of other people, or because of circumstances in your life or your relationships, you find yourself single. And then he said, there are some who have chosen this because of the kingdom of heaven. Now we're going to get to that one in a moment. But he says this, not everyone can accept this word. The disciples go, whoa, marriage is a lot more difficult than we thought. And he said, yeah. And they said, it's better not to be married. And actually, he said, now, yeah, I know you're saying that out of kind of a reaction, but he's saying, actually, there are people who are not married and not everyone who can accept it, but those who find themselves in it should accept it. Now, you might say, well, that's terrible advice. So if you're single... You should just try to accept it. Is that what Jesus is saying? There's two things that we need to know to understand why Jesus would say it this way. First of all, I have to understand as married people, he talked about it in such a way as we said last week, like this isn't something you can just get out of. So you shouldn't over-idealize marriage and thinking this is the end all and be all. But he said, if you find yourself single, you should accept it if you can accept it. Now, what does he mean? Either if people who are just said, well, I never felt like getting married. Or some would say, well, I'd like to, but it hasn't worked out for me circumstantially. Or those who have chosen it. What does that mean? Those who can accept it should. Two things we need to know. First of all, who's talking? This isn't a married person giving advice to single people. It's Jesus. 
Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus came to a son of God, fully God, fully human, but as a single man? And if you think there are pressures in this culture to be married, they were 10 times in the ancient world. There was no legitimate place of being single. And so we don't know all of the cultural pressures that Jesus had to deal with, but most people just thought he was an ordinary guy. And so I'm sure he had conversations with people saying, well, what's wrong with you? Mary and Joseph, his parents knew his destiny, but nobody else really did. And so would have well-meaning aunts and uncles, whoever said, what's wrong with you? Would people have looked at him a little bit sideways in that culture because it was kind of strange to be a 33-year-old man and not at least be betrothed to someone? This is Jesus who understood what it was like to have unfulfilled sexual desire. He was a 33-year-old man. So that would have started at the age of 12, whenever it starts for us guys. Until 33, he would have known what it is. And so when he's saying, hey, this is not everyone can accept this, but those to whom it comes should accept it. These are not the words of a married person saying, just try to endure it. This was Christ, the man single man, understanding what it is for people to pressure you and say things that are hurtful to you about it, to have unfulfilled desire, and even the desire to, for companionship that is a human innate one. The scriptures begin with a, a wedding, a marriage between a man and woman. God says it's not good for a man to be alone. Would Jesus have felt that loneliness? For sure, he was fully human. The scriptures tell us he was like us in every way. This is not blasphemous for us to think about the Son of God struggling with unfulfilled sexual desire, struggling with loneliness from a lack of a female companion. And you know what's so funny? Is that history has so been so unable to accept it, we're always trying to put a woman next to Jesus. The whole Da Vinci Code is based, there had to be a woman. How could he be fulfilled if he wasn't with someone? And so let's write this whole story about he fathered a child with Mary Magdalene and all this stuff because we can't imagine that he would have been fulfilled by himself as a single person. He was rewriting what it meant to be a significant human being. Yes, God said it's not good for a man to be alone, but Jesus comes on the scene and actually and says, one can be obedient and fulfilled in life even as a single person. So that's the first thing to realize is that as Je it's Jesus who's talking to us about being single about trying to be obedient to God, about living a life of no regrets as a human, like us in every way, dealing with all the temptations and frustrations of being single. But the second thing is this, and without this other passage, we can't quite understand. What did Jesus mean when he said this third category of people? He said, those who have renounced marriage for the kingdom of heaven. What does that actually mean? This becomes actually clearer to us through the writings of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. Probably one of the longest chapters on marriage in general. Some of it is easy to understand. Some of it's confusing. So if you want to read the whole thing by yourself, by all means, and send me an email or if you want to talk about it. But here's what the Apostle Paul says. He's writing to the New Testament church, people who are newly, new, have newly become Christians, and he's beginning to talk to them about marriage and singleness. And here's what he writes. Verse 25. Now about virgins, he means people who are single. I have no command from the Lord. In other words, Jesus didn't say anything specific about this, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, we'll get to that in a second, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short, for this world in its present form is passing away. Paul says, because of this present crisis, you should remain as you are. If you're married, don't try to get out of it. If you're not married, don't seek marriage. What was he talking about the present crisis? That words go with the other two words in that passage when it says the time is short and this present world is passing away. What was the crisis? And this was not a crisis as in, oh no, something terrible. The word crisis here in the Greek literally means something that is about to happen. The, the period of time before something monumental happens. What was he talking about? What was this thing that was going on that was changing everything? He was taking this 
institution that was ultimate reality in that culture, which was to be married, and he was saying, actually, that's not the most important thing in life. So if you're married, great, stay married. If you're not married, don't get married. Why? Because of the present crisis. Something else is happening. What is that something else? It's this. You and I are all in the midst of engagement preparing to be married. Couples who get engaged, and we have a few of them in our congregation, was the date of the wedding approaches, everything else begins to take second place. Work, other things, you get wrapped up in all that's happening. And so you find like you're at work and you're trying to work, but you're doing other stuff. You're trying to call a DJ or whatever. Like even just the plans of the wedding, but it's not just the plans of the wedding and the party itself. Everything begins to dominate this impending marriage. You know this, it begins to seep into every reality, every conversation that you have. Every time people talk to you about it, that's what they're talking about. There is an anticipation of something that is about to happen. And Paul says, this is where we are as Christians. We are in this place anticipating what? Yes, the story of scripture began with Adam and Eve, a man and a woman getting married, but it ends with a wedding as well. And it's not about a man and a woman in love forever. It's about Jesus, the bridegroom, coming back for the church, his bride. And so he said, listen, in light of the fact that Christ loves you and that Christ is returning and that all of eternity is described as this killer reception party. It's called the wedding supper of the lamb. It sounds very spiritual and boring. And that's how we say it's the best reception you've ever been to. And it never stops. Like I always think those uh, first century weddings that went on for like seven days, like that, that's how you get married. Like a seven day party. Scriptures tell us that that will go on forever as we are joined to Christ who loves us perfectly and purely. And so he's saying, listen, in light of the kingdom of God, that you are all in the process of being swept off your feet. You are all in the process of preparing for the true lover of your soul to come to you. Now this takes marriage and singleness, which we can tend to hold up here as ultimate reality and says, yes, it's important, but it's not, it's, it's penultimate. It's not ultimate reality. You are loved. In other words, the love that you so desperately seek as a married person or as a single person, the love that you felt like you had and that you've lost as someone who's single again, is actually foreshadowing of a deeper love and longing that no human could possibly fulfill, but which Christ has promised to return and fulfill. That it's actually a sign in your heart that eternity exists. Have you ever thought about that? That the longings we have in our heart, which somehow we discover actually nothing can fill, no matter how much we buy, we still want to buy more, no matter how much we eat, we need to eat more, no matter how much love we get, we still want to know, do you you love me today? (laughs) No matter how much we've had in the past, it's never enough. Why? Because we have a God-shaped hole in our hearts that is longing for something deeper, something lasting, something pure, that will not fade, that will not get corrupted or blown up by our own sin, that will not look shiny from far away, but ultimately up close fade. Every bit of longing and desire we have tells us there's something I'm longing that this world cannot provide that is actually beyond that world. And Paul says, in light of that, that this is truth, that Christ is returning to bring you the love that you so desperately want, then take it down a notch. Married people, single people. And so as a single person, this is what I want to encourage you with. Jesus says, look, there are some who have renounced marriage for the sake of the kingdom. Now, maybe you're somebody who's still wanting to be married. You're not sure if it's going to happen. You're hoping it's going to happen. To renounce marriage, let me suggest to you, would be to say, you don't have to say, well, I'm not going to get married. You can long to get married. You can still pray for that. You can still hope for that. But long and hope for something greater. Know that there is something greater. And see, this longing that I have in my heart for companionship, for sexual fulfillment, for to, be, to love and to be loved, to be of utmost importance to a person of utmost importance, ultimately, I am going to get that. And so I can pray and wait and hope that God would perhaps fulfill that for me with a husband or a wife. 
but I'm not gonna stop longing for the greater things, the kingdom things, which looks like this. Andy Stanley in his book, The New Rules, put it this way so well. He said, we have this idea that there is a right person out there and what we are doing in life is looking for that right person. He said, actually what we need to do is realize that we need to become the person you're looking for is looking for. Become the person the person you're looking for is looking for. Instead of waiting around and hoping that, you are, that you'll find the right person, become that person. And Jesus actually tells us how to do that. Seek the kingdom of God. If it's true that there is a greater love that God has for us, greater than even a spouse could fulfill us or a child could fulfill us, then we pour our lives into his kingdom. In other words, which is look, places that I can serve and give and love. How can I love others? How can I pour my life out for other people? How can I make sure that just because this particular part of my life hasn't happened, I'm not gonna camp out here and wait and do nothing until it does. That I can wait and I can long and I can pray, but I'm gonna keep moving because God has given me gifts. God has given me love to pour out. And even though I feel like he hasn't brought me a spouse to pour that love onto, there are all kinds of people in my life that need that love. And I'm not gonna hold back waiting. I'm not gonna get stuck in this stage of life. And the chances are, if you begin to become the person, the person you're looking for is looking for, you're, you're probably more likely to meet a person like that. Because you are out there you are investing because you are realizing God has given me a purpose in life that actually doesn't obliterate a potential marriage, but it transcends it. It's more than marriage. And I remember in, in my wedding, when my dad gave the charge to my wife and I, he said, marriage is a not just looking into each other's eyes, it is side by side looking outward at a world. And unless you have a greater purpose in your marriage than your own love, you will not be fulfilled. And so to become the person the person you're looking for is looking for is to have a greater purpose in life. And for those of you that are married, your own marriage cannot be the greatest purpose in your life. Eventually you will shrivel up as two people become so selfish and in turn that actually the love that you hope to preserve dwindles away. It's only by actually side by side looking outward, pouring yourselves out into a world that is so desperate for love that you begin to get filled up and dimensions of your marriage begin to grow and strengthen and intimacy takes on a whole new level. We can begin that process as single people. So don't stall out in life waiting. Pray long, but keep moving. God, what have you placed in, in my path right now? It's not the spouse I'm longing for, but what is in my path? And how can I pour it out? How can I leave it all on the floor and not be afraid that somehow if I do this, I'm gonna miss that person that God has for me. And maybe some of you, are single and you're like, no, I've accepted that and I, I'm not gonna get married and I'm okay with that and I don't, I don't think I want to. Realize then that the time and energy that, you know, Paul says, you know, those of you who are married, I wanna spare you from that because a married person has a lot of concerns in their life. It's not that your time as a single person is less important than a married person. It's just that a married person's is already all accounted for. I remember hearing a sermon by Matt Chandler and he's like, you know, as husbands, you come home, you're working, then you come home and then you hang out with your kids and then once your kids go to bed and then you hang out with your wife and make sure she's okay. And then it's time for bed. And he says, if you want to know where's your time, you shouldn't have gotten married. <laughs> a married person's time is all accounted for. I don't have to pray actually every day, God, what should I do with my time? I know. <laughs> it's there. But as a single person, if you said, well, no, I don't. Well, then what am I going to do with my time? Don't spend it all on yourself. Say, God, if you've given me this stage of life and if I can accept it, then what do you want me to do? Which influences, which relationships, which things are you gonna bring in my path? Pray intentionally into what God does want you to do with your time. Let me just talk briefly. How are we doing on time? For those who are single, again, as I'm talking, the, Tony's number's on the back of your bulletin. If you have questions, we're gonna take Q&A in a few minutes. You can text them in as we're talking here. What if you're single again? You got married, it ended. Obviously, it's not what you thought was gonna happen and now we're here. Our culture immediately assumes that you'll move on to the next relationship. And what I would say is this, don't immediately assume that. Our culture takes separation, divorce, and remarriage and conflates them all into one thing. If it ended, just seek the next one. I would just say is wait because of a couple things. One is 
The scripture actually doesn't permit us as Christ followers to get married again if our first marriage just ended because things didn't work out and there was no apparent reason or we just fell out of love. Scripturally, that's not a reason for divorce. It's not legitimacy for remarriage. And even the places that scripture does give permission to remarriage, if there has been infidelity, and I would say also abuse. You have to understand this passage. It says, well, this, this only says marital infidelity, and, and so does that mean if someone's abusing me, I can't get divorced? This was written to men, okay? So Jesus is not going to tell men in that culture, if your wife is abusing you, you can get out of the relationship. This is written to men. We would understand anything that was a capital offense in the Old Testament in terms of abuse would also have nullified a marriage. But even in the case, if you said, oh, well, my spouse cheated on me and maybe that's what dissolved the marriage, that doesn't mean you have to or should get remarried. And here's what I would say you need to do first is look back. Say, what happened in my first marriage? What did I contribute to that? You may say, well, if the, if the person cheated on me or they were abusive, I didn't contribute to that. And you're right. No, nobody causes someone to abuse them. But then you have to ask yourself the question, why did I marry them in the first place? On what premise? Did they just become like that overnight? Or were there behaviors that I saw actually earlier on that I ignored and I didn't want to acknowledge because I wanted to be married? And why, if that's the case, did I do that? What was going on in me that made me think either I needed to get married, or I couldn't get out of this, or this was the best that was going to come along, or that person will change. The failure rate on second marriage is 70% or higher. And in any other venture, if you were in a plane and about to jump out of a plane and the guy told you those parachutes, seven out of 10 fail, would you jump without at first asking questions? How do I know? You wouldn't. And so some of us who are friends, the people who are walking alongside, we need to be courageous enough to say, hey, you should stop and wait and look back. Because if I don't understand, and oftentimes when we're in a relationship where either someone has abused us or cheated us, we can look on it and think and see all of the problems with the marriage through that lens. Well, that was because they were doing that. Well, that was because they were cheating on me. And what that does is place all of the emphasis on the breakdown of the marriage on that person. And we're free to say, I'm going to be better next time. That's why so many people get married, but that's why so many marriages fail a second time. Because it's a, it is an unexamined perspective and thinking, oh, that was them. I'm fine. I can do this. And yet, the statistics tell us it's not happening. The failure rate's even higher. So why? So if I'm a single again person, I have to stop where I am at this stage in life and say, have I looked back enough to understand what happened? And what does God have for me now? And for all of us, to understand God's kingdom is broad. It's much bigger than romantic love. God has plans for you in your life that have much more than to do with your spouse or your potential spouse. And so how, God, how can I find those out? And to become the person, the person I'm looking for, is looking for. And so here's what I want to say. If you're in a couple different stages in life, now what? Perhaps you're single and uncertain. Don't stop becoming that person. If you've noticed something in your life that has caused you to slow down, to think, oh, I'm going to wait, I'm going to hold on. Don't stop. If you're single and uncertain, keep investing in God's kingdom. Keep asking God, how can you keep making me into the person you want me to be? If you're single again, take an honest look back and a courageous look forward. An honest look back, and you'll probably need the help of good friends who will tell you the truth, who you can reflect with and say, Why, how did I end up in that relationship? If it was a destructive relationship, how did I even choose that? And if it wasn't destructive, but it became that way, well, then what was my part in it? Help me look back and take a courageous look forward and saying, well, maybe I don't have to get remarried. God, I'm going to be courageous about my future even if I think it might be alone, even if that terrifies me, even if I'm not sure. I'm going to be courageous saying, God, whatever you want for me is what I want for me. If you're married or you're single, seek out friendships with one another. I know in my family, my parents are just approaching their 70s 
And our best family friend is a single guy who's been a friend of our family for decades. And he is permanently part of the family woodwork in our, we wouldn't think of having a birthday for any one of our kids without him. And so he considers my kids his grandkids. And they assume, he, they, they know he's part of our family. And he has so greatly enriched the lives of my parents. He has so greatly enriched our lives. And I think he would say he likes being around us too. He's brought such a diversity. He's a different cat. He's funny. He's, when, and whenever we get together in my family, we have all these debates about all kinds of stuff. And he's, he has all these different perspectives and we listen and respect. And so he has so enriched our family's life. And I would hate to think of what would have happened if he would say, well, I, I feel like a third wheel, so I'm not gonna hang around Cinder and Sham. Or if they would have said, oh, well, no, like we're, you know, we're just gonna hang around with people who are in the exact same life stage as us. It's always easier to hang out with people in the exact same life stage. And sometimes single people and married people can think like, be afraid of each other somehow. We need each other in the body of Christ. We need what the other person has to offer beyond just, and there's no way that spouse or that family stage can offer you everything you need. As married people, you need the perspective of someone who's single, whose whole world isn't wrapped up in their household at that time, which can be so myopic for us as married people with kids. You need people who are in different life stages. And single people, I know, let's ditch this idea of a third wheel and say that family has things that I need and I have things that they need. It's part of the reason that we haven't aligned our home groups by life stage or by affinity. It's just saying we need to be slammed together in the body of Christ and find friendship. So maybe there's a single person in your life, a married couple, you say, I want to spend time with them. And I know a single person was saying, like, you know, I, I do want to be asked about my romantic life, even if it looks like it's non-existent. I want people to know, like, I don't want people to avoid it as if it's some subject they can't talk about. But I also know it's not everything in my life. Or maybe as a single person, there's a married couple in your life that you feel safe with or you think that you could feel safe with them. And you like them and you admire them. Or maybe they have a marriage that you kind of respect that you think, I'd like that in my life. Seek that out. That's what we should be doing in the body of Christ. And lastly, if you're feeling hurt or frustrated, whether as a married person or a single person, you're single again or you're not sure what's gonna happen, know that it is Christ, the single man, who gave us these instructions. Jesus, though, everyone was always trying to put people next to him who remained obedient. And, and Hebrews says he had to become like us in every way so that he could learn obedience. In other words, Jesus didn't just come to the earth perfectly satisfied as a single person, not having to learn to put his sexual desires under control, not having to learn to deal with loneliness. It says he learned obedience so that he could identify with us in every way. And so whatever it is you are going through, Christ had to learn to obey the Father in the same way. Isn't that mind-blowing? So that he knows what you are going through. He is the one, not only who bore our pain, but who continues to bear our pain as we come to him and say, Jesus, I don't know how to do this stage in life. You do. Teach me. I need to learn. Before I give you a final thought, I just want to open it up for any questions on this? And again, I know every week when it comes to marriage and singleness, these are such big topics. There's so many things that could be said. And so I know I'm not covering everything. So part of the Q&A is to help with that. Um, okay, one question has come in. Uh, what does it mean by, but those who marry will face many troubles in this life? And I want to spare you this. In 1 Corinthians 7. There's a lot of people, when you read the 1 Corinthians 7, there's a lot of people that think Paul was sort of anti-marriage. Now, he wasn't married. So maybe he was looking at things that were going on. And so, you know, well, how do you square, you know, Genesis, where it says, you know, man and woman meant to be together. Marriage is a good thing. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, who's saying, well, it's kind of a bad thing. I just want to spare you the trouble of it. He was challenging Okay, like I said, if you think we hold romantic love up on a pedestal, that they didn't necessarily hold romance, but they had no other way of living except to be married, and they, they had no conception of their future without being married. And so Paul was challenging that notion of saying, do you understand that now that Christ has come, everything has changed? And I'm betting what he observed is that, and he says in other parts of the passage, that when you are married, it is harder to put God first, 
all the time. Because the rest of the relationships in your life are clamoring to put them first. And as a married person, when you get married, you do pledge to put that person first. And so Paul says, look, there's a tension that you will find in your married life. And not that you can't serve God as a married person, but now it, it, you have to actually think about it in a very different way. Because it's easy to get totally absorbed in your marriage, totally absorbed in all of the cares of life, totally absorbed in what you think is meant to you know, take all your time and energy and forget God's kingdom. And so Paul's saying, perhaps he observed that and saw that and said, look, as a single person, it is easier to see that as the kingdom of God. Whereas a married person, that gets cloudy a lot faster. And from his perspective as a single person, you want to say, hey, I'm just saying, you could spare yourself that if you wanted to. And so it was really this chapter is challenging this notion that marriage is ultimate reality. It's saying, no, it's secondary. The kingdom of God is first, which now says, I don't have to be married. I don't have to find all of that fulfillment in that relationship. What are some guidelines you might give to someone who's single but is dating in a dating relationship? Um, okay. Um, I, I got some advice early on when I, when I was dating that someone said to me, look, BJ, when you're dating, be as selfish as you can possibly be. Because once you get married, that's, those days are over. And what he was saying was, be critical. Think about the person you are considering potentially dating and marrying. Like this person. Many of the marriage breakdowns come because we were uncritical and we were assuming that what we saw, the best of the person was going to remain and the things that we didn't love were going to fade away. Which is a really big assumption. That all the things you see that you love are going to get better and all the things that you don't love are going to diminish. And so as you're dating to go, that's a lie. How am I willing to accept this? And in fact, is this person going to grow? And here's what I would say. If the person you're dating has shown no ability or desire to change anything in their lives. And if they do not have Jesus in their life and an understanding that Jesus is actually purposed to change them, walk away. Now. Because to go in and then think that they will change is not fair to them. And if they have no sense that God actually wants to transform them and that I am who I am, that's a bad sign walk away. And so critical thinking, I think, beforehand is really important. And I would say this, if the person you're dating doesn't love Jesus, and you do, that's a bad sign too. They are not going to somehow love him through your love. Don't assume that that would change because that's not fair to them either. And once you marry them, you cannot walk away because of that. Once you marry them, you cannot say, well, you didn't change it, so now I'm done. It's like, no, you knew that ahead of time. So the only thing I would say is dating, be as critical as possible and ask your friends who will tell you the honest truth for input. Not just the people that are so gushy excited that you're dating. Ask the people who would say, well, what do you think of this guy or this girl? Do you think they're like this? Do you think they're like this? Do you think they're like this? Those are important questions. And, and I really do think you need to ask for help because you, you can't get married alone. And that's essentially, traditionally, that's what the witnesses who are with you in the marriage were supposed to do, is to be people who are fully supporting that. Thank you. Let me just close by saying this. I'll invite the worship team to come up and lead us in a final song. I was thinking, how do, what, what do I leave us with here? And this line just kept coming to me over and over. God is able to bring his love into your life in miraculous ways. God is able to bring his love into your life in miraculous ways, which is ultimately what we long for. And so if you're a single person, you think, I don't know if I could ever find somebody who would love me like this. Just know that God can bring his love into your life in miraculous ways. It may be through a person, that becomes your spouse. But he is able to do it even without that. And so the love that you are longing for, say, God, I believe in miracles. I believe that you can do something with the longings in my heart. Either through someone that I think doesn't even exist or through another means because you do miraculous things. If you're a married person dealing with some of the disappointment in your marriage, you think, gosh, I wish I would have known this before. 
God is able to bring his love into your life in miraculous ways. He's the God of the miraculous. He does things so far beyond what we could ask or imagine. So trust him. Today, say, okay, God, this is my life where I'm at, and you know, I trust you to bring your life, your love into my life in a miraculous way. Let's pray. God of love, we have sung to you and about you. Jesus, we thank you for the love of the Father that was shown to us by your love for us on the cross. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the one inside us that gives us an internal witness to that love. It's not just some mental thing that we can try to somehow conceive of. But the Spirit, you come into our hearts and help us know in our inner being that we are loved. And so we thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you are love. And I pray that you would do miracles in our lives in the coming days and weeks. For those who are single and maybe thinking at some point to get married, maybe it's been a long time, maybe it's been longer than we'd hoped, that we would trust that you are able to bring your love into our life in miraculous ways. And for those that maybe have decided I'm not going to get married, that you can bring us a level of fulfillment in relationships and in your love that is beyond what we could have hoped or imagined. And for those of us who are married, who are frustrated with how expectations have not materialized, that you can bring your love into our life. We ask for faith to believe in. In your son Jesus' name we pray, amen. Oftentimes as Trinitarian people, we wonder, well, what is the Holy Spirit actually doing? God is the Father, Jesus is the Son who's given to us. What is the Spirit? The Spirit is the one who comes into our lives and gives us an internal conviction at the heart and mind that all of this is true. The Spirit is the love of God that comes into our lives. And so, said, your Spirit is strong in me, or here's what I wanna bless you with, two things. One that you would be able to see by the power of the Holy Spirit that God is shaping your life. That's just what we wanna know. You haven't left me, you haven't forgotten me in this place that I'm in, that you are shaping my life. So I just pray that the Holy Spirit would convince you of that in your heart, that you would know that God is shaping your life. And that secondly, the Spirit would give you such an internal conviction of the love of God for you. That love that is higher and greater that actually fills that hole that we have to be loved. So I wanna bless you with the Holy Spirit like that. Would you receive that?